Good evening. I had the opportunity to finally meet the school board, which is something that, uh, as a 24-year-old trying to break into the coaching profession, I just felt like if you give me an opportunity to sell myself to the school board, I could hopefully earn the position. And so often I'd get to that point and they'd say, well, we've narrowed it down to a couple of candidates and you're not one of them because you don't have experience. And so I finally got the opportunity to meet with the school board and they unanimously hired a young guy that uh, didn't know much, had his head in the clouds. And during that meeting, one of the board members said, well, do you have any questions for us? And I said, yes, we've talked about the job. We've talked about when I start, our salary and all that kind of thing. But how good is the team? And they all kind of looked at each other and they said, well, uh, you won't win two games. Apparently, the guy that came before me was very successful. The guy that spent many years there before him was very, very successful. Both of those guys were gone because they weren't going to be successful. That's how it works. And so the young 24-year-old guy was going to come in and take his lumps for a few years. They said, you won't win two games. And I said, okay, we won eight, which was pretty good. Beat the number one team in the state. That was good. But after the early season, and, and you could tell it was going to be a rebuilding project. The newspaper guy came over to me, and he said, so uh, team is struggling. What do you attribute it to? And I said, we're not very good. And he said, yeah, but I mean, what, what specifically? And I said, we're not any good. I mean, what, what do you want me to say? People in the community, well, coach, what, what, what's going on? What's wrong with the team? Well, we've got a bunch of mules and we need some thoroughbreds, right? I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, people don't like that answer because they want to blame somebody, and most often they want to blame the coach. He must be doing something wrong. He must not be doing his job, or else they would be better. They can't see that your team is filled with a bunch of 5'8", scrawny kids that can't run, they can't jump. It's better, and it makes us feel better if we can blame somebody, if we can, if we can shove it off on somebody else. One particular man calls this the loser's limp. When we shift the blame or we act like it's someone else's fault so that we don't have to accept responsibility. You ever heard that term? One way that he describes it is like a track meet and you're running, you know, let's say the, the 400 and, and it, it's neck and neck and these two guys are running side by side, two girls running side by side and they're about to get to the final turn and one of them takes off and is obviously going to beat the other one, beat his opponent. And the opponent, not wanting to face the humiliation of getting beat, pulls up like he pulled a hamstring or something and acts like he's hurt so that he doesn't have to face the ridicule. And so the fans would sympathize with him and say, well, see, he could have won maybe if he was healthy, but obviously he had hurt himself. Or in football, when the wide receiver goes out and beats the defensive back and catches the ball and is racing towards the end zone and the defensive back knows he can't catch him, so he pulls up lame like he hurt something. That's the loser's limp. And we don't only see it in the sports world, we see it in real life as well. We see people constantly pulling up lame so as to blame someone or something else so that they don't have to accept responsibility for their own shortcomings. Remember Aaron and the golden calf incident? You know, when Moses takes him to task, what does he do? He blames the people. They forced him into it. They urged him into it. He succumbed to the pressure, but it was all their fault. From the very beginning, we see this. Adam and Eve. Adam blamed the woman that God gave to him, and Eve blamed, 
blame the serpent, right? This has gone on for centuries. Since the beginning of time, people are always looking for someone else to blame. We want to shed responsibility, whether it's society, whether it's the schools, whether it's my upbringing, my parents, whatever. I got to blame somebody. A 1960s folk song by Anna Russell characterizes this very well. Maybe you heard this song. It says, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally. I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poison all my lovers. But I am happy, now I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And that is how many in our society operate. And that might be fine and good when it comes to certain areas of life, but it is a horrible way of responding to sin. Because when it comes to our own sinful selves, the only action we can take is ownership, responsibility. Instead of saying that nothing can be my fault, we have to understand that when we stand before our Lord on the day of judgment, it will only be us and our deeds. And no amount of blame shifting is going to work that day. And yet there are still people who say, well, how can any of it be my fault? I mean, how can it be my fault that I love this person or that person? Even if it's the same sex or the opposite sex, how, how can that matter? Because God made me this way, right? I am who I am because this is the way that God made me. You know, some people say, well, you know, I, I steal because I suffer from kleptomania. It's a disease. It's not my fault. That's, that's why I have a problem. I mean, you can disagree with me on this. This is only my opinion. But that's why I disagree when I'm counseling with folks that, that have a problem with alcohol. I disagree with the concept of alcoholism or treating it like it's a disease because I think so many times when we treat it as a disease, we can rest on that and say, well, it's not my fault, right? I have a disease. I caught a germ, and it causes me to drink. I talked to a gentleman who had been sober for 20 years, and he said, you know, but once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And I said, no, you're not drinking. You don't suffer from alcoholism. You don't have a disease. You're not drinking. You haven't for 20 years. But see, if he ever takes a drink again, I worry that he might step back and go, well, it's the alcoholism, not my fault. It's the disease. And again, some can disagree with me on that. I just, I, I, feel, I feel that sometimes we give ourselves a cop-out in the way that we address things like this. If you look in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so the question becomes, what were these people washed from? Well, sin. Plain and simple, right? I mean, they were these things, but now they were no longer those things. So why would God make them this way and then demand that he be washed from them? I mean, that really calls into question the, the justice and fairness of God, doesn't it? 
Why would he make somebody this way and then demand that they be washed clean, right? When we look at sin and, and, and the, the life that we live and how we are only accountable for ourselves, we look at the responsibility for our actions and admitting that we have a problem. It's not my fault. It does not work. That is not a proper response because it is your fault. There is no one to blame but you. You cannot shed responsibility here. Sin is a personal problem because sin is the result of choice. Sin is the result of disobedience. However, sin does not have to be the death of us. We don't have to lose here. We can win, but only when we choose to accept responsibility and accept Christ as our Savior. It's funny, when I was thinking about doing this lesson, I thought about something that Les McGalliard said. You guys remember him. He was the great man who came before me here at Oldham Lane. But I remember Les and I talking about something one time and me telling him, you know, I, I, I preached on that a hundred times. Do I really want to preach on that again? And he said, Chris, don't ever assume the brethren know anything. And I thought, okay. So maybe, maybe it's okay that if I preach on this. Um, if you look at Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight. In Luke chapter 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son among two other parables there. And I want you to notice the first two verses that we read there. It says in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So right off the bat, we see two different groups of people in the crowd. You see sinners and tax collectors, the people that were in the crowd because they were wanting to hear what Jesus had to say, because many of them had been following Jesus because they found someone that related to them, that wanted to be around them, that actually wanted to have something to do with them. Because remember, at this time, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes, who should have been playing the role of Jesus, didn't want anything to do with the dregs of society because they believed that God hated sinners, so therefore they should hate sinners as well. So this crowd included the sinners and tax collectors, the people that Jesus ate with, because they had been enamored with Jesus because he came to seek and save people like them. But there's another segment in this crowd, and that is the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were in the audience for a much different reason, right? They were there because they wanted to catch Jesus saying something that was blasphemous. They wanted to perhaps back him into a corner. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to find him saying something or doing something that they could use against him. And so you have these two different segments of people. And based on what you read in those three parables in Luke chapter 15, you might assume that the people that Jesus was focusing in on or zeroing in on were the tax collectors and the sinners. But that's not the case. You know who he's talking to more than anybody? The Pharisees and the scribes. The points that he is making here pertain to them as much as anybody else. In fact, when you go over to the parable of the prodigal son, what you see is Jesus speaking to these two different groups of people. But if it were to play out like a theater play, you'd have two acts. You'd have act one, which is the sinners and the tax collectors and what is being addressed to them. And you have Act 2, which I think is probably the more important act, or at least as important, Jesus addressing the older brother, who was also wayward, right? He was also prodigal, he just didn't leave home. 
Jesus addresses that older brother because guess who represented that older brother in the crowd? Yeah, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so Jesus is really zeroing in on them as much as anybody. Notice verses 11 through 13. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. We've talked about this parable. I know you know what this parable is saying, but let's just for the sake of some background set it up a little bit. The request made by the younger son is rather shocking because in this day and age, it was perfectly natural. In fact, it it happened that when the father died, the estate was split up, and if there were multiple children, they got a portion of that estate. If there were two boys, like we see in this parable, then the older would get two-thirds, and the younger would get one-third of the estate. That's just how it happened. But that only happened when the father died. So the son is coming to the father and saying, I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead, I want to go ahead and get my, my inheritance now. Now, this inheritance, if it's going to come in money form, some things are going to have to be sold, right? And so the father is going to have to go and sell off some of his property in order to give the money to his son, to this spoiled brat. This young man is saying, I don't want to be a part of the household anymore. I don't want to be under your rule or reign any longer. Just give me my money and I'll go. Now, what's, what's also shocking about this story is that the father does it. Because in this day and age, most fathers would have responded by beating the tar out of that son. That's funny, but it's true. In fact, if he had beaten him to the point of death, it probably would have been understandable. But the father doesn't do that. The father gives him his inheritance, and the son goes about his way. The demise of the younger son started the moment that he demanded his rights. When he separated his interest from the interest of the family, the desire to leave home on his own, maybe that's perfectly natural, but the restless yearning to flee responsibility, now that's immature. Because sons were invaluable to the father also in working with the father and helping him keep up the homestead and all of that. And so this father says, I'm done with you, I'm out of here, and he leaves. This son envisioned a life with no rules and no restrictions and no responsibility to his father. But, as you know, he ends up in a pigsty. Verse 14 and following says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And it's so ironic that this son who lusted for freedom 
without restraints, without bondage, and without the reign of his father, finds himself enslaved after all. But the prodigal learns something that every wayward child has to learn, and that is you cannot enjoy the things that money can buy if you ignore the things that money cannot buy. The young son knows that he has forfeited his right to be a son. He has given up his place in the family. And so he decides that he is going to come up with a plan. He is going to return home. He is going to talk to his father about this. And just maybe he can just be an apprentice to one of the hired men. Maybe even one of the men that took his place as, and, and learn a trade and earn an honest wage. And maybe begin to pay off the debt that he owes his father. And what follows is one of the most beautiful stories of repentance and forgiveness that we find in the Bible, right? Notice verse 20 and following. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Please notice that. I. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he was right. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. As a rule, fathers did not run. You may or may not have known that from Jewish history. The stately patriarch, the pillar of the community, would never pull up his robe and take off running and show his bare legs. That was just a sign of immodesty. But he runs. Because a true spirit of forgiveness doesn't care about anything else. You fall prey to the moment and you do whatever is possible to reach your wayward son. You don't hesitate. You run because when you love someone so much, you don't wait for them to get to you. You go to them. And then the father kisses him. The Greek form for kiss here in this passage is intensive in nature and it means to kiss fervently. This wasn't a quick kiss on the forehead or on the cheek. He is kissing him all over his face, even on the mouth. As if to say, I can't believe you returned. I'm so glad you're back. The image of, is of the father kissing his son and then telling his servants to bring out the best robe, which would have been the father's robe. Think about that. Bring out the best robe, which was the father's robe, and place it on the son. That was a sign of restoration. That is a sign of the father saying, I'm not going to wait for you to pay off the debt. Stop this ridiculous kind of thinking that you're going to be an apprentice and pay off the debt. That's not even going to happen. You are forgiven. Your debt is cleared. Put on this robe to signify your place in the family. You don't have to work your way back in. You don't have to earn your way back in. And then a feast was prepared where they brought the fattened calf. Do you know how unusual it was to have meat at these feasts? But this was a special occasion. Because a prodigal son had returned home. And what we see is that the father does not humiliate his son. He does not turn his back on him. He doesn't lock the door and tell him to go away. He doesn't sit there sternly and demand that the son apologize and grovel and bow at his feet and beg for forgiveness. Notice that the father runs out to meet the son when he sees him coming. 
at that point, the father didn't even know what the son was going to do. The son may be coming back and saying, look, I'm going to get some more money because I, I don't like the amount that you gave me. The son could have been coming back to say, you know what, good riddance, I'm glad I left. But the father doesn't know. He runs out to meet him. He kisses him. He welcomes him with open arms. And he grants him all the rights and privileges of being in the family. The prodigal son had been reckless in his behavior and spent everything he had on loose living. But the prodigal father had been restless as well. Excuse me, the prodigal's father had been reckless as well. He'd been reckless with his forgiveness and his mercy, his compassion. He spared nothing to make his son feel welcome again. And so here's my question. What would have been the fate of that son had he not owned his sin and made up his mind to come home and beg the father's forgiveness? What would have been his fate? You know, incidentally, that last line there says, for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. You know, there's a sermon there on once saved, always saved, right? I mean, that's a side note, but I mean, if you're outside the father's household, you're dead. Because when you're separated from the father, you're dead spiritually, right? The son wasn't dead physically, he was dead spiritually. But the moment he came home and the moment that he wanted back in the father's good graces and back in the father's household, he was brought back in and now he was alive and a celebration ensued. But how would this story have played out had the son not resolved to own his sin? What if he had shifted the blame? What if he had blamed God for bringing a famine? What if he had blamed everybody else but himself? But he says, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy. It's all on me. It's all my fault because that's the first step to restoration, isn't it? Accepting responsibility, accepting ownership. You know, I've witnessed individuals who either by mouth or by fingers on a keyboard on social media, they say things like, I am who I am. I just tell it like it is. I speak my mind. If you don't like it, then that's your problem. I'm going to be me. I'm not changing for anyone. If you can't handle me, then that's your fault, not mine. This is the way the good Lord made me, and I'm going to be true to myself. You ever heard statements like that? Ever seen statements like that? You know, what is that person saying? They're saying, I'm going to be a jerk, and there's nothing you're going to do about it. God made me a jerk, and I'm going to be a jerk. And all their jerkiness, they refuse to change. The last thing we need to do is be proud of ourselves for being who we truly are. The best thing we can do is try to be a better, a better version. In fact, to be completely transformed to allow God to, to shape and mold us into something great. He made all of us with potential. All of us have the potential to be a great servant of His, but you'll never get there by saying, I'm going to be true to myself. I'm just going to be me. You've heard me say it before. Don't be you. Don't be yourself. Yourself stinks. Be something better. Seek something better. Live out who God has called us to be. And that is a, 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 a valuable servant of His. Someone who seeks to make the world the be, a better place by being salt and light 
God has called us to something better. Have you ever noticed that the gospel was designed so that each person must acknowledge that he or she is a sinner before they can be saved? Have you noticed that? Do you think that's a coincidence? I mean, don't you think that God had, in his, in his great foreknowledge, had something great in mind when he, when he designed it that way? That in order to be saved, you have to admit that you are a sinner and that you need Christ, that you need a Savior. Have you also noticed that God has designed the process of continual forgiveness in a way that we must confess our sins before we can be forgiven? You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. God has designed it and set it up that we have to acknowledge our sin in order to receive forgiveness. That we have to take ownership. We all have a limp, don't we? All of us. We're all crippled by sin. But we don't have to be losers. We win when we take responsibility and we seek restoration. If you haven't done that, then do so. If you're not a child of God and you're crippled by sin and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism tonight, then do that. Don't wait. And if you're someone who maybe has lived a life that you're running a race, but you're running the wrong race, and you're ready to join the race that leads to an eternal prize, and do that tonight. Maybe you're someone who's running the race, and you're just you're struggling. You're limping along, and you need the prayers and support of this church family. Then, then let us help you with that as well. You know, we offer this invitation every week, and I'm afraid that all too often it just becomes a, a time to put our stuff away or an addendum to the sermon because, you know, that's what we always do, so we got to do it. Now, seriously, think about your spiritual state and what you need to do to get right with God. And don't leave here without doing it. Dave's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in some way, come now as we stand and as we sing.